Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott, a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theatre masters, founders and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. Hi, Rob Norman in Toronto. Welcome to Improv Interviews. Oh my gosh, thanks for having me. I'm delighted. I love Canada, Canadians, and especially Canadians in Toronto. Our mutual friend Cam Algie is a mm -hmm. great guy up there. So let's talk a little bit about your improv journey, starting with when you were really small, three or four years old. What was your family like? Oh my gosh, we're into the therapy already, aren't we? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh no, these are all my secrets. <laughs> um, I grew up in the suburbs of Toronto. I was the youngest of three. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting thinking about your placement in your family, about how that affects the way you play. So sometimes I'll notice this when I'm teaching, there's, there's improvisers who come into scenes and the first thing they do is they set up the scene for everybody right away and take care of everyone that is for sure the oldest child i am not that person i am the youngest child so i just go into spaces and assume i'll be taken care of because there was always my older brother my older sister like even when i go on tour with my my um, improv partner adam collie um, we make a podcast called the backline together um when we Fa go on a tour, fabulous fabulous podcast by the way great topics oh that's very nice yeah. um when we go on tour he's the one to figure out okay there's food and we're gonna get this hotel and just kind of show up and go it'll be fine <laughs> well the youngest child quite frequently in family systems is the child that they call the clown or the humorous one or the jokester was that your role in the family or were you more serious i definitely was not serious i was definitely the jokester but i was probably a moody jokester my teen years i was a very moody boy for sure absolutely well who's not moody in their teens i mean come on that's why they call it the moody blues <laughs> there you go there you go yeah it was a uh, a time for rebellion and mischief i guess for me it was a lot of mischief but uh <laughs> yeah anyway uh so tell me about your early interest in theater acting improv like when you were in grammar school were you in any plays or what was going when did it start for you i mean i was always a class clown i was always very loud as a kid that was a, a big feature of my childhood and that got me into a lot of trouble um in grade eight i was in there was three different classes that you could be in and one of the classes was doing a big shakespeare production and for whatever reason, somehow I got roped in to being in this other class show. So I was actually pulled out of my class and put into the lead of this play. It was Twelfth Night, and I played a, um, I played. Oh my gosh, what the the main character's name? Orsino, Duke Orsino. That's what his name was. And now, was a duke so fair of face that you really said, "This is my place." <laughs> that's very cool. 
Oh my gosh. I wish I remembered any of it. Um, but that was the first moment where I was like, oh, here's something I'm good at. And this is the thing that makes me special. Yes. Yes. And then going into high school, were you in plays in high school or doing interested in drama at all? A normal person might do plays in high school. I was abnormal. I was part of a youth community theater group. So we put on our own productions, our own musicals. And when I was about 15 or 16, um, one of the older members of the group who must have been 25, um, he was going to produce an improv show. And at the last minute, after getting approved with all the budgets, he dropped out. And they said, oh, no, well, we have this budget for this show. Would anyone want to do it? And I put my hand up and said, I'll be in charge of it. My mom was a librarian at the time. So she took out a whole bunch of books on improv. One of those books was Truth and Comedy. I read all of Truth and Comedy. I got 16 of my friends. I taught them the Herald. I had never done the Herald. <laughs> I had never seen a Herald. I just did what I thought the book said to do. And we ran that show for three years. Wow. What was the name of your troupe? The show was called You Laughing at Me. And um, it was a, a show that just ran once a year and we would do three or four shows a year. Wonderful. Did you ever encounter Viola Spolin when you were reading? No. I mean, for the most part, the most part when I first encountered Viola Spolin would be when I started taking classes at Second City. And and Spolin's work was a, a large influence on a lot of the instructors there. So all of my knowledge of Spolin kind of comes secondhand through some of those older teachers. And one of the things I've found is a lot of people in Europe and Canada are really more familiar with Keith Johnstone than Spolin for some reason. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting. The history of improv in Canada has a, a very unique journey and maybe something that a lot of people in America might not know. Like, for example, most people in Canada who are improvisers were a part of something called the Canadian Improv Games which is a countrywide competitive uh, uh, competition for, for a bunch of teens. So if you're in high school, you can sign up for this and you can compete. There's big nationals. And so that's most of our introduction for improv. Um, and, and who was the founder of that organization? Well, so in, with Canadian improv, there's, there's three big parts. This is kind of all happening at the same time. Yeah. But this is actually a David Shepard project. Yes, so yes. Canadian <laughs> Improv Games was called Improv Olympics. Right. It was with an X. It was started in New York City. It didn't really take there. He brought that up to uh, Ottawa, which is where it really took hold. And yes. So uh, Canadians are are surprisingly good at improv. We, we punch much bigger than our weight class suggests. We're 10% of the population of America, the same population as California, but we seem to have a lot of great improvisers. We make a lot of great improvisers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And thinking of David Shepard, of course, Michael Golding's a good friend of mine who's an archivist for David. And uh, was it Willie Wiley and Howard Jerome? Mm -hmm. so yeah, I mean, I never did CIG, which is kind of a shame. I mean, my yeah. high school was not that organized to get involved, but um, Adam Cauley, who I do the podcast with, my current boss at Second City, Julie Dumay, they all got their start at the Canadian Improv Games. That's beautiful. So let's go back to your start. So without much of anything, you start 
teaching improv. And uh, where did that lead to next? Where was your journey next after that? That ran for three years. Three years. My drama program at my high school, um, for the most part, was also just improv. So my drama teacher would teach wow. us a couple improv games at the beginning of, of the year. And then the rest of the time, she would just let us play. And sometimes we would wow. run games ourselves. I also became a TA. And so I would teach improv to other kids and other classes as a part of a credit. Um, so for the most part, to me, theater was improv. And at the yeah. end of that program, which is our 13th grade, you if you were at the top of the class, then you would get to the special reward um, the teacher would rent a limousine and drive you downtown and you would see a Second City show. <gasps> yeah. So I got to see Second City and I remember leaving that show. It was a particularly great show. I remember thinking, I don't want to be famous. If I can do that for the rest of my life, I'll be very happy. I don't care if I'm making like 30 grand a year, which probably would have been a lot of money to me at the time, but I can be sort of poor as long as I get to do that, I'll be happy. Wonderful. Do you happen to remember who was in the cast back then? Oh, my gosh. So everyone in that cast, I'm very good friends with now, but I'm still very nervous around them. So Paul Bates was in that show. He was incredible. Um, Lisa Brooke, who was my director at Second City, was in that show. Jerry Hall, uh, Doug Morenci, who taught me later. Um, who else am I missing here? Um, there's a couple other folks, but that was the, the main cast. And um, yes, it was incredible to be able to hang out with those folks. I still right. get nervous around them. That's funny. So um, so you're still in Canada right now. Yep. Did you did you decide? Keep going with your your journey. I don't want to foreshadow no, anything. Fine. Um, what else did I do? Well, I went to theater school for a year and I was really disturbed that it wasn't improv class. I thought that was weird. I went to theater school, went, why aren't we doing games? Why am I like reading all these scripts? There's so much memorization. Also, why am I supposed to cry all the time? And so I ended up dropping out of theater school and going into art school. And so I became a painter and a printmaker, but I felt like something was missing. I had some friends who lived in my dorm who were still in the theater program. They were really into comedy. I was really into comedy. And they said, hey, why don't you come audition for this sketch show? It's a sketch television show. We're gonna all go do it. Why don't you come do it with us? Wow! So I, had I you would, been had you been doing any writing at that point? Were you already writing sketch? No, no, not at all. And so I showed up. I auditioned. I got in, and they didn't. And I thought, oh, that's weird. We started to make this sketch show, and it turns out it wasn't for a television network it was a woman who wanted to make a TV show. And so she decided that she was going to film it first and then sell it later. After the first sketch, the first video sketch, she dropped out. It was just us. And so in that cast was um, Adam Cauley, who's one of my best friends, Jason DeRoss, who's one of my best friends, and Chris Siddiqui, who the uh, Second City alumni, a lot of other great people, but if it if it hadn't been for that chance encounter, I would not be an improviser today. Gosh, that is so so incredible. So I'm I'm thinking about who came out of Second City in Canada. Weren't people way before your time, of course, because you're very youthful. Um, <laughs> but uh, was Martin Short and Gilda mm -hmm. Radner, um, 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 Aykroyd? Yep. They were all Canadians. Beautiful Canadians. Levy. Yeah, Eugene so, Levy, yeah. 
Yeah. So in 1973, um, Second City was having so much success in Chicago. There was a businessman who said, oh, I'd like to try it up here. And so they didn't have any improvisers because improv really didn't exist in our city. So they grabbed the cast of Godspell, who was yes, yes. <laughs> the cast of SCTV. And that that became the basis of, of sketch comedy and improv in Toronto and Canada. Now, were you watching SCTV as a young person yourself? Not at all. No, that and Kids in the Hall are two big parts of Canadian sketch comedy that I missed out on. Growing up, my family didn't have a ton of money, so we didn't have cable. So there's a lot of things that I, I may have missed. It was only the recent series of Kids in the Hall that I uh -huh. watched, the new one on Amazon, where I finally got Kids in the Hall. Because at the time I, I was watching, I, I just didn't understand it at all but no not a lot of sctv and not a lot of kids in the hall that's funny so um when did you just you went to chicago at one point didn't you you went to the mothership yeah i mean i would pop in there a lot just for festivals i was also part of this group called the canadian comedy company which was an offshoot of the chicago comedy company who did all corporate improv so i would travel there a lot for workshops um, and also too, like I was just mesmerized with Chicago. I, I wanted, I should mention that like, I was always obsessed with long form because that's how I started from the truth and comedy. But, um, but there wasn't a ton of long form in Toronto when I started. So coming back to Chicago and going, oh my gosh, I'm at the IO right now. They're doing the Herald correctly. Um, and this is a Friday <laughs> night and I see kids dressed up in like tuxedos and it's their prom. They've come to IO on their prom night. Wow. That's their big special wow. night out. That was like a dream for me. That was like Valhalla for improvisers. So um, Chicago is and always was for me a magical place. That's great. So um, you've written a book that I, I know is wonderful, but I'm ashamed to say I haven't read it yet, but I am going to read mm -hmm. it, Improvising Now, mm -hmm. and uh, available on Amazon and other places. <laughs> and um, when did you write that book? 2014 um, was when it was published, and it probably took about seven years to complete it. Okay, what was inspiring you to write it? You know, it kind of ties back to that earlier story, that kid who asked his mom to bring back a library book. And Truth and Comedy's incredible it's such a great resource yeah, but one yeah. of my challenges with that book is it didn't teach me how to do a scene it didn't tell me what it felt like to be in a scene or how to build one and i feel like this this book was an answer to that kid you know a lot of books written by folks are older directors who don't perform they sit in the front row and go this is what a good scene looks like this is what they the audience is like but there weren't a lot of books that tell you oh when you're on stage it's going to feel like this when this happens you're going to think this and so improvising now is a kind of response to that problem and there are great topics you like initiating scenes and agreement how to discover game of, it took me a long time to figure out what game of the scene meant you know heightening so a wonderful and then structuring an improv show which is your expertise sometimes to some people <laughs> would say that so at one point did you ever have to have a regular job or how 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 young were you when you started actually doing improv as your work. I I haven't had a regular job really since university. 
I mean, right out of university, I was flipping hamburgers and then I was working at like a fancy club taking people's jackets. I actually took our prime minister's jacket one time before he was prime minister. Oh, Trudeau? Trudeau. I took Trudeau's Trudeau. jacket. Wow. Yeah. And I did you keep it? You you and you call you you didn't call him Trudeau, you called him a cab? Wait. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. No, it's good. <laughs> um but I remember that during that job, I got an offer to run um, some kids classes at Second City Toronto, and I quit my job and I haven't had a normal job since. Oh, that's beautiful. So your dream came true. Yeah, it really did. Yeah. yeah. So tell me more about the history of Canada a little bit and Canadian improv. We kind of touched on it, but I'd like for people to really understand more about what it looked like. We talked about David Shepard a bit, but, you know, what are the thoughts you have about the history? Well, what year did you get started, by the way? What year did I get started? Oh, my gosh. What year is it now? Um, I mean, I, like when I was 15, I would say I was pretty serious about improvising. So more than 20 years ago. Wow. Terrific. Yeah. Um, You know, a lot of people's understanding of improv kind of comes through this Compass Players, Second City narrative. It's a narrative that I know very, very well. But in Canada, we had this strange, bizarre thing happen where three major um, ideologies about improv sprung up all at the exact same time, and they all launched their companies independent of each other. So it was a magical year, 1977. In 1973, Second City Toronto launched. We already talked about the Canadian Improv Games, which would have called, been called Improv Olympic at that time. CIG launched in 1977. Um, it was after the CIG launched that David Shepard went down to Chicago, met up with Sharna Halpern and created Improv Olympic. But there's two other kinds of improv that maybe people don't know a ton about. And so the other one would be theater sports. And this was created by this fellow named Keith Johnstone. He's an, a British man who moved to um, Calgary. He worked at um, a university there. And from there, he started experimenting with some improv that he was doing in the UK, back in the U UK with this group called Theater Machine. And so basically what he would do is he would get groups of students. He would throw them on stage. They would do some stuff and go, that's boring. Next group, go up. No, you're boring. Next group, go up. And from that, he created a bunch of rules. And these rules would, would have been very, very different than Spolton's rules, very different than the kitchen table rules. And so a lot of our understanding of improv comes from the West Coast of Canada. And Calgary is a, a fairly large city, but the cultural impact that the Loose Moose Theater has had on improv in Western Canada and just Canada overall has been incredible. And so theater sports uh, is trademarked. It is played all over the world. And it basically is two teams that go up on stage. They get marks from judges and the audience. And um, the points don't really matter, but it was based on professional wrestling. A lot of people would probably know comedy sports, which is the Americanized version of it. But that's actually a kind of offshoot of theater sports. This is the non-trademark version of theater sports, comedy sports. Okay, so that's competitive improv that we would all know. And um, yeah, theater sports and John Stone has a lot of very strong roots in Australia and England and different parts of Europe, um, some, some places on the Western coast of America. But there's this other third style of improv that people don't know about. Do you know what the National Improv League? 
Have you ever heard of that before? No. So this is out of Quebec. So in Quebec, obviously, we we all speak French there. Um, and there's these two actors. Their name is Robert Graval and Yvonne Leduc. And they were actors hanging out in a bar, watching hockey. Couldn't be more Canadian than this. And they said, wouldn't it be great if we could take our love of hockey and our love of theater and combine them? And this could only happen in Quebec. They made a couple calls. And was within two weeks, the wow. idea that they had in their brain was on television. And what was the name of the company again? It's National National Improv League. That would be the English version of it. I won't embarrass myself by trying to say it in French. And so this is hockey style, um, competitive improv. The rules are are very strong, very strict. So um, if you say no, that's a penalty. If you swear, that's a penalty. And the penalties do matter. The points do matter. Uh-huh, so you uh-huh. can get pulled out of the show for making a mistake and put in the penalty box and then only be allowed to come back later, which is not how we would do it with CIG, not how we would do it with theater sports. So they take it a little bit more seriously. I actually didn't know a ton about this improv format at all until I went to Mexico City. So I was, <laughs> I was helping a friend set up a long-form theater company there. And um, I was like, well, what's the improv in your city right now? And she goes, oh, there's only something called Match. I go, well, what's match? It's it's two teams, soccer jerseys. So they had adapted this format that was starting in Quebec for the Spanish-speaking world. And so in France, Belgium, Switzerland, um, it's done, I think, all with hockey. And in Italy, Argentina, Mexico City, it's done with soccer. And um, this format that I've never heard of before travels all over the world. It's incredibly popular. It's it's literally eight hours away from me. And I knew no, I knew nothing about it growing up. Wow. And so have you played that and taught that as well? I've, I haven't played that. For a while, we were doing shows in that style at our theater, the John Candy Box Theater. It's a kind of small black box for students. So I've seen it a couple times. I've never played it myself, but... Um, there was also a short run on Canadian television that did improv in that style. But I just thought it was just a TV show. I didn't know it had this long history. That's incredible. So we have these three very distinct styles in 1977, each company launching in 1977, Second City Toronto happening in 1973. Like that's an incredible four years for yeah. improv. Oh my gosh, yeah. And... um <sighs> Oh, I, I was going to go back to what are some of the rules that um, Keith had? Because I'm not as familiar with Johnstone as maybe I should be. But um, what are some of the rules he had in his play? You know, I'm I'm not going to be great at this because coming up, um, everyone who taught me was just Johnstonian in style. Uh-huh. It's hard for me to kind of pull out what okay. exactly was the Johnstone style. But like, so for example, one of the phrase that you might say would be like wimping wimping would be a Johnstonian phrase. And basically that means is instead of making the big, exciting choice, you've made a lesser choice. You've right. made a safer choice. So that'd be called wimping. Um, I don't know, blocking, bridging, um, 
pimping. We don't use that term anymore, but that's what was called at the time. Yeah. So there's all these phrases that was a long list of Johnstonian phrases that just kind of got sucked up into my vocabulary. Yeah. So talking about theater sports, do you have favorite games in theater sports? Because I'm familiar with comedy sports, mm-hmm. but I'd really love to know what are some of the theater sports games you love? I mean, I think for the most part, the theater sports games and comedy sports games would be pretty similar. The only difference might be is like on the West Coast of Canada, Rapid Fire Theater in Edmonton, and then um, Vancouver Theater Sports in Vancouver on Granville Island. These are two major hubs that take their short form very seriously. And so at those two venues, when you return, like I go to I go to Vancouver probably once a year to teach workshops and do shows. When I return, they've always invented a new game. So it's very exciting to be there because of how seriously they take short form. Um, But what are some of my favorite games? I like games that are closest to scenes. So something like Pan Left is a classic for me. Last Line Clap would be a classic for me. Um, I do like joke games like Sex With Me or Innuendo. I enjoy those. Right, right. But there's other games too. Like I I was at Rapid Fire and they invented this game called Heckler. And the way it works is me and you do a scene. We do it to the best of our ability. And then the rest of the cast goes into the audience. And then they just yell insults at us. Like they're heckling us. Uh huh. It's a wild game. It's so much fun. I it bet. is so much fun. <laughs> you know, there's a game I know that I love called Slow Mo. It's a slow mo con. Um, event it's a sporting event i don't know where it came from but Mm -hmm. so we're you know doing crazy things like it's a the national olympics of vacuum cleaning or whatever Mm -hmm. um and when i first learned it um you know at the end one of us would like if it was vacuum cleaner we'd throw our vacuum at the other player or whatever Mm -hmm. oh classic classic move yeah love those games (laughs) so 20 years that's a long time let's Talk about how improv has changed over the years that you've been doing it, because certainly there have been changes um, and a lot of things are maybe different now than they were back. I mean, you know, years ago was a four, initially four white guys on stage. You know, there were few women and very few people of color. Um, so what are some of the changes you've observed over the years you've been performing and teaching? I mean, the changes in Toronto have been many. And and one of the big things for us, when I really started doing improv in the city, um, Second City had just gone bankrupt and we had moved spaces. Bad Dog had just gone bankrupt. The long-form theater company that I, that I was with, with Cam Algie, who's a coach Cam Algie on a team, it, it was defunct. So when I was coming up, there was no one in charge. The people who I looked up to who were in that first Second City cast, they weren't around because they were focusing on TV and film. So for the most part, like, you know, the inmates were running the asylum. People had to step up and take leadership positions. And because of that, we started making up rules and forms and shows, and we got it wrong a lot. But also the good news is when something worked, we were creating things that had never been done before. Um, we ended up making a show called Man Town, which was like this satirical frat party where we'd be making fun of frat culture. And that was the most successful long form show in the history of Toronto. It ran for, I think, wow. 15 years straight. Wow. Yeah. What are some of the premises of that show? 
Besides I mean, frat, you know, the the premise of the show was basically we're going to have this frat party and we're going to celebrate masculinity. And it was always things that undercut masculinity. So it was like nothing man manlier than gardening or whatever it is. <laughs> um, we definitely there's no real frats in Canada, and we were definitely not the people to join a frat. Maybe get beat up by a frat. So. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun kind of making fun of that culture. It was very silly, um, very rowdy time. Um, so that was that was great. We ended up um, creating our own approach to long form that would be very different than IO and UCB, mostly just because we were so far from the mothership, we had to kind of find our own solutions. And we ended up building out this, this whole other system of play I uh, created something called the uh, Second City Long Form Conservatory. And so basically this was like a high level study. It started out with one class. By the end of it, there was like nine classes. There was six teams. So we really changed what long form looked like and what it could be. We invented our own formats. Um, Cam Algy became an instructor as part of that program. Um, so yeah, like that was really exciting and something I'm very proud of that that we we built something from nothing that was entirely our own it's beautiful so someone i happen to like a lot and i like his book a lot is michael gelman and mm. he's canadian i think or he's living in canada now he was at second city chicago for many 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 years um i don't know if you've come across him at all or not yeah uh, gelman, gelman, yeah. gelman works with us at second city toronto I think during the pandemic, he moved just outside of the city, but he's still teaching. He's still around and still very active. Um, yeah. Very nice man. He's a very nice man. Yeah, I like him a lot. So um, tell me a little bit about how you, you know, what what are you teaching right now? Like, what is your schedule like? What are you actually teaching right now? What am I teaching right now? So I'm teaching at Second City, and right now Second City is kind of going through um, a transformation. So we're really yeah. focusing on the core program, which is cool. I've been teaching a lot of beginners, which is, which was an interesting challenge for me because I've been teaching advanced players for so long that I forgot some of the simple anxieties that people have. So um, that has been a, a strangely a new challenge for me, but I'm really enjoying it. It's making me connect with improv in a different way. And then I've also kind of set up these like smaller coaching sessions um, for folks in New York or Sweden. And um, that's where I'm kind of doing my more advanced work, working with duos online to create shows and build out formats. Awesome. Okay. So it's the first class of a beginner class. I'm brand new. We're all brand new. And our instructor, Rob Norman, comes in. Tell me about some of the first things you do in that class. So the class would see a um, man walk in with a cardigan, sweat dripping down, down his face, drop his books and go, oh, um, no. I mean, the beginner class is really interesting because the first thing that we have to kind of combat is that you have to teach them that they belong there. That's like the, the biggest challenge you have in that level one class. On the back line, we talk a lot about warmups. I have a, an issue with warmups. I'm con I have some concerns about warmups. You know, yeah, big... yeah. Let's talk. Not to digress too much, but let's talk about that. Okay. Your issues, because I was listening to the podcast about warm up. So, um... yeah, I mean, my main concern about warm ups are sometimes it feels like we're doing them 
Um, and they're a kind of empty gesture. So the idea that we're going to count down from eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and I'm going to tap you on the back. This is a ritual, but I'm not sure if that necessarily improves your performance in any way. Um, at best, it maybe kind of, you know, soothes your anxiety a little bit. So these simple games that we kind of do um, before show, if I'm on tour and the theater's doing them, I do them and I'm happy to participate. But for me, I think everyone's warm up is very different. What you need to get ready and what I need to get ready are completely different. They're very private. It's very personal. I feel like it's almost like an incantation. You're working some dark magic before you step on stage. And so if we're all forced to, to participate in this group warm-up, you might need a physical warm-up, but really I need mental warm-ups. Or you need to bond with your cast members by having a chat, making jokes, where I need complete silence and to be alone. So economically, I feel like the the mandated group warm-ups maybe are are more about um superstition than they are about actual um practice and so that would right. be my general concern about it yeah there, there's one that i can't stand i, I got your back mm. got your back i you know i know a lot of people do that but it, to me maybe you don't really have my back you're just saying you have my back you know i've been on dysfunctional teams before so uh that's where i'm coming with that <laughs> one <laughs> yeah i mean got your back is, is such a nice idea and i think the idea is right but yeah, it feels more like superstition than. Yeah, like I'd rather have someone say, I'm going to be really listening to you tonight. Or I'm going to take time before I speak tonight. I love pauses, by the way. I love mm. slowing things down a lot. Mm. Um, but let's get back to my in my first class with you. you mm -hmm. You're trying to let me know that I belong. Well, I don't think I belong here. I mean, I'm not, I don't know. I don't think I can make jokes or things like that. And this guy comes in, Rob Norman, and everybody <laughs> said he's a good teacher. But, you know, I don't know what I'm doing here. So the first things I'd be thinking about is how do we give you some wins? And that's where these simple games come into play that allow you to build confidence. So for example, clap focus. Well, what is it, what is it teaching you? Well, it's teaching you to make eye contact. It's teaching you to send energy across the room. And sometimes people uh, make fun of clap focus, especially stand-ups and sketch comedians, because they look at people clapping at each other and be like, what are you doing? What's the point of this? And I don't think their criticism is wrong. But as an improv teacher, if I can have you have the focus on you and give it to someone else and you feel like the game is working well and you did okay within the game, now you're ready for something a little bit more challenging. Yeah. Can you describe clap focus in case okay. some of my listeners don't know what it is? So there'd be a big group of people. We make eye contact with everyone in the group and then we would say someone else's name, Margo, and I would clap towards you. Now you have the focus, you say someone else's name and you clap to them. And so we're trying to send this around the circle and there's different ways that you can do it. You can speed it up. You can make these changes to make it more fun and more challenging. But basically it's a way to give you a success right off the top. Right of off the top. top. Yeah. Which is really needed. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, my, my, another one of my mentors, Lisa Merchant, who is an incredible improviser here. She wants to describe these simpler games to me as a kind of cleansing. It's a kind of baptism because you're, you're, you you have your day, you have your stress and it's hard to shake that off. And these simple games allow you to do that. And so that was the first real good argument I heard about how these simple games should be used and what they're used for. So I really like that idea. It's a way to build confidence and it's also to kind of reset you. So you're able to play. Right. 
And play is the word. So um, what's next? Mm-hmm. I'm really picking your brain on, on your classes here. Oh, I mean, and, and then from, from there, if I'm going to be honest with you, it's how do I, how do I get you as close to doing advanced improv as I can within eight weeks without overwhelming you? Because that's really what I want to be talking about. I want to be talking about um, complicated relationships and dynamics and, you know, the nuts and bolts of a scene. Those are the things that I'm passionate about. So if I can move you towards there, that's when I'm going to be happiest as a teacher. Yeah. The relationship is so important. So important. Um, you know, I, I love teaching games like gibberish where people don't have to worry what, about what they're saying, but can just, you know, communicate that way. I also like mirror a lot. And, and some of my friends say, well, mirror can be intimidating for some people, but I think it's such a great way of getting to know somebody else in a nonverbal way. If Yeah. And you know, one thing that I've started to do is I've replaced the word relationship with dynamic and for me dynamic is something separate from relationship so a relationship would be our formal association so it's like in this conversation i'm a guest and you're the host and that's our relationship but built into that relationship are not instructions of how you should treat me and how i should treat you it's not built in there so our dynamic could be brother sister that could be our dynamic even though the relationship is host guest it could be therapy a therapist and patient that could be our dynamic even though this is our formal relationship it also kind of dynamic also kind of addresses a problem that we had which is this old school rule about no strangers so when i was starting very johnstonian to have no strangers so if we want to do a doctor scene and you're the doctor before the scene really gets going you have to say so i have your test results here mr norman but it's so crazy i haven't seen you since high school um it's so crazy that we were in grade nine together Anyways, you're dying. Like that little bit of having a history yeah, yeah. was essential. Well, that's not real life and it's not really helpful to us. It's, it's an extra thing that we're adding on to deal with a problem. But dynamic, you don't need to have a relationship because there's playable instructions within the dynamic. So we have all been on the subway. We sat down. We looked across from us and we saw, oh, there's a very special person. They're reading the book that we love. It's Kurt Vonnegut. Oh my gosh. It's Cat's Cradle. That's my favorite book of all time. They're dressed in a really interesting way. I feel a kind of kismet. I There's a connection there. Should I talk to them? I can't talk to people. That's crazy to do that. And so why would I possibly do that? And before you can say anything or do anything, they get up, they walk out the door, ding dong, ding, the door's closed and you're heartbroken. We've also experienced the opposite of that where you sit down across from someone on the subway and he's wearing a leather vest. His name is Meat Hook and he looks like he wants to eat you. <laughs> and you felt sheer terror. Right. And that is also a playable scene. Both yeah. of these dynamics are playable. They don't have a relationship. So dynamic are playable instructions. Relationships are a kind of category that we use to talk about the scene, but aren't helpful to the people who are actually on stage. Oh, I love that. I love that idea. That's wonderful. See, I'm I'm having a free class here. That's why I do this. (laughs) So now you're also a writer. You've written, you've written for some movies and shows. Uh, Early in my career, I got, um, I got hooked up with this company called Toonbox and we were doing a lot of animation writing. I don't do it so much anymore, but while I was with the tour co, me and my good friend Jason DeRoss we would we wrote a whole bunch of scripts um we wrote like maybe 20 or 30 episodes about 
beatbox or beatboxing beats who live in a fridge. There were wow. a lot of episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Who are some of the characters in beatboxing? Um, they're just different colored beats who beatbox. So I can't tell you much more. Oh, than they're that. beats. They're beats. They're beats. They're vegetables. <laughs> It was a show that didn't, wasn't in English. It was in beatboxing. So um, that was a fun thing that I got to do. Um, yeah, r- right now I, I work for CBC. That's, I guess, the closest thing I have to a day job where I make a couple podcasts for them. So I have this one show called Personal Best, which you might like, actually. It's um, a self-help podcast for people who hate self-help. So, oh, yeah, I think I have to look at that. I have to take a note. Personal best. Yeah. Yeah. Where this is like the kind of anti Tony Robbins show where you come yeah. on the show yeah. and you say, Oh, man, I really want to. Every time I go to the CVS and I try and talk to the cashier, I'm always so awkward. I don't want to be awkward talking to the CVS cashier. And so we'll spend two weeks with you, talk to scientists and experts, create a complete program for you. And all of the ideas are very bad. It's very based in the improvisational idea of like, just try something. If it fails, don't worry about it. And um, oh, I love it. Oh uh, yeah, and, and and we've done that for two seasons. Um, our third season is going to launch in February 2024. And um, yeah, someone liked it so much that in I'm going to Sweden to teach a design class on how to build their own self improvement projects. So it's um, a very <laughs> wild ride. Boy, I bet. Now, do you do that with a partner? Who do you do the podcast with, Personal Best? Yeah, it's this guy named Andrew Norton. Um, he comes from public radio. So he's worked on 99% Invisible. He's helped oh. out with American Life. So, um, yeah, we, we met in a very random way. CBC was looking for comedy shows. I didn't know anything about radio. I knew one guy who made radio shows. So I reached out to him and... That's our show. Oh my God, that's fantastic. And do you do you tend to write every day or only when you have something you're doing? Um, you know, that you're a project you're actually working on? This is such a good question. I don't write every day because the way I make stuff is obsessive. So I will probably write every day, but not out of routine because I'm working on something and I have to get it out of my head. And then if I don't have a project to work on, well, first of all, I'm probably depressed and I probably won't pick up a pen at all. But yeah, I, I go through these spouts of creativity where all I can do is this one thing. And then once it's finished, I never do it again. Okay. So um, I'm, I'm actually uh, multitasking and looking at personal best right mm-hmm. now. Um, how to dance like no one's watching. Uh Learn, listen, oh, I'll have to take, listen to this, but I'll put it in the text that goes with this uh, podcast, with, with our podcast, because it mm. looks pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, I will definitely That's take great. a look at that. Yeah. Um, so we talked about before the show, we were talking about therapy and how much you love therapy. And mm. I think a lot of actors are basically not, a, well, a lot of actors are introverts, but use the comedy improv and other things to get out of it um you know the anxiety so tell me a little bit about your psychiatric history and um how it affected you as an artist if you don't mind my psychiatric history um (laughs) yeah i mean i've had some things that kind of have 
I've, I've needed to deal with. In 2008, I got robbed by four guys. They broke into my house with a rifle. Oh, tied no. me up and beat me up and stuff. Um, I did a little bit of therapy. Didn't really click. Didn't have a great time with my therapists. In 2018. That's an awful oh, trauma. Right there. That's an horrible trauma. It's mm-hmm. horrible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm, keep going. <laughs> I, I could see that like your therapist sensors have been activated. You're like, oh no, <laughs> but I'm okay. I'm okay. In 2018, I got mugged by two guys and they broke my foot. And so I had to go back to therapy to kind of unpack some of that stuff. And that's when I met my current therapist. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, I was pretty serious after after the, the mugging in 2018. I was going like twice a week. I, I was in a lot of trouble. Um but yeah, I think I think one thing I love about therapy is this kind of um, psychonautical pursuit, and that's a big word. But basically, like yes, it's it's the same word that um, it's the same way I feel about improv, which is like astronauts go outside of our planet to go explore space. Um, a psychonaut goes deep within themselves to yes. understand themselves better, um, and so um, yeah, like the idea as a, a psychonautical pursuit is in improv and in therapy, you are trying to unpack these very complex, interesting issues that are waiting for you to explore. And so I have always looked at it like, Oh, therapy is like going to a movie or it's like taking fun drugs. Like you're going to learn something every time you go. And hopefully you have that moment of gnosis where your brain lights up and goes, Oh, I'm so excited that I found out this thing. I can't wait to tell people about it. That's awesome. So, and you're still in therapy. I have taken a break um, just because although our, our um, medical system is incredible here, therapy is not covered. So everything else is covered, but therapy is not. But um, my therapist, Michael, understands, and I will be back with him soon. Well, you'll have to return that coat to Mr. Trudeau so he'll (laughs) um, get that mental health thing in the the system. Um, How has therapy informed your improv? You know, there was a big conversation with my therapist and a lot of my friends who were in therapy about this fear. And the fear is, um, if I fix myself, will I be funny anymore? And I, that sounds like a joke, but it's like a real concern. And the reason for that is if you think about people who are professional improvisers or standups, when you first start this, you go on stage, you try to do something, which is make everyone laugh and you don't. And either you get a kind of coldness from the audience or you get like a vitriolic response. Like people boo you or heckle you. That's what you risk every time you go on stage. Right, right. Why would a normal person want to do that? Why would a normal person sign up for that treatment? And it's it's only if there's something maybe a bit broken in you that you go, no, this is how I'm going to get my validation and I'm going to keep doing it until I become excellent at it. Um, and so for me, like, I, you know, I had moments where I was very popular in school, moments where I was bullied. Um, always very loud, definitely didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. And so improv is like that place where you're, you go, oh, cool, I can try on anything and there's there's no consequences. Like I can be as loud as I want to. And not only will I not be punished for that, I'll probably be rewarded for, for taking that right. risk. Right. But I have noticed that like 
as time has gone on, my relationship with comedy has changed a lot. If you met me at a party 2006, you would have been so annoyed. Or maybe I would have been so charming to you because I would have been doing bits all the time. Uh huh. And then like in 2020, you're going to a comedy bar and you're hanging with other comedians. And I've never been more bored in my life. The funniest people I know on stage are the least funny people I've ever <laughs> met off stage. And it's because, well, that's my job. I'm going to do my job where it's appropriate to do my job. And off stage, I want to have a conversation about, I don't know, my feelings or this relationship or, you know, I just, I just learned this fact about ancient Mesopotamian gods. Do you want to talk to me about it? It's, it's not the in incredibly funny, everyone laughing kind of moment that you would imagine comedians are having off stage. So I think that's the big worry in therapy is that you fix something deep down in yourself and that thing that's broken that makes you funny is healed and then you, you're you not funny anymore. But that wasn't the case with you. I mean, improv is so great because like it's it's all about dynamic. And so dynamic, I, I just don't think, I don't think can go away. It's like riding a bike. It's like I have 30 characters that I do fixing myself isn't going to make those characters disappear um stand up or like being funnier at a party maybe that might have changed in me maybe i'm less compelled to be funny at a party but it's not something i'm worried about and are you doing stand-up at all no no I, i've done stand-up i actually did a pretty fun fun storytelling event like a moth -like event about my robbery in 2008 Good um, for you. Actually, that's actually how it got me into podcasts. I had a pretty good run telling that story. I was like flown out to a bunch of different places to do storytelling workshops and stuff. And so some, the guy who worked, Andrew Norton, who worked for 90% Invisible, he saw that story and reached out to me. That's how we first got introduced. Wow. Yeah. Um, I love that. I love storytelling and it's a complete art in, into itself, really. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just beautiful. But I was thinking about, you know, if I fix that, will I still be funny or whatever? And I think a lot of people who use drug and alcohol and drugs and alcohol <laughs> in the improv field fear that, you know, I'm not going to be as funny or I'm not going to be as this, you know, um, and it's exploring new territory. Um, I, I totally believe in recovery. I don't think you can perform well by smoking a joint before you go on stage. That's my point of view. Um, and that being clear-headed is a big part of it. But I think you discover a whole new person when you recover. So that's just my little editorial on, uh, on recovery there. Yeah, I mean, it's so built into our art form like the the stories and the anecdotes built around it really have celebrated alcohol and drug use truth and comedy all of those guys obviously were dealing with some pretty serious drug issues yeah dell used to say two drinks you're funnier three drinks you're less funny um i i understand alcohol and um maybe cocaine people have argued that improves their performance but i wouldn't imagine any other drug like smoking a joint i can't imagine making you funnier yeah no me neither it just makes me dull and paranoid <laughs> so um this will be airing in about a month and um i'm wondering what year what's on your uh coming up like for 2024 you have some gigs around the country internationally what are you going to be doing rob 
Yeah, I mean, we're always on tour, me and Adam. So we will show up to your town and we'll do shows and workshops and sometimes a live episode of The Backline if you're interested. Um, that's happening. We have some, we're in talks right now to do a little bit of traveling. Um, also, um, I'm launching a comic book, my first graphic novel ever. It's called Future Favors the Bold. Um, it is a kind of dystopian dark satire about futures and utopian ideals and how cool. I'm disappointed by them and um this launches in a, a month so probably will be over by then but if you wanted to go check it out on kickstarter you could just um type in the search bar future favors the bold and you'd see that book wow cool so yeah. um so you have a lot of going on how about your personal life how's that doing that's well, going pretty good you know i think one thing that's interesting as you get older the idea of having a stable personal life is real exciting. Yeah. The idea that you're like, oh, all the people I love are happy and they're around me and we're we're slowly, gradually building something bigger than ourselves, our family. Um, that was a surprise later in life that I wasn't expecting. I think maybe when you're younger, you're looking for those twists and turns. You're looking for that excitement. And at the end of that that journey, you end up with nothing. So this has been... This has been a new thing in my life, um, really focusing on family and um, taking care of people around me. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, you're just a delight. I hope you come down to Naples, Florida and give a workshop here. That would be awesome. <laughs> um, and there's also every year there's a uh, the Sarasota Improv Festival in Sarasota. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but that's a big one. I don't I don't travel much. I just do everything online. Uh, but I will go to Sarasota. It's not too far for me. But I'd love to come to Canada sometime because I've met the most wonderful people from Canada. And uh, really, and this has been so delightful for me, really. So if you had a piece of wisdom mm -hmm. uh, for somebody that's thinking about maybe has your point of view, I'd really like to do this. I'd like to make this be my work. What would you say to them, Rob Norman? I will give you the advice, which is the best advice I ever got. I was sitting at a bar. There was an improviser who was very well established. And I said to this person, I said, hey, how do I do what you do? And the guy said back to me, just wait around long enough. If you wait around long enough, all the people who are better than you will have moved on to other things or they will have quit and you'll be left. I went, good plan. And that, wow. that was the trick. That's great advice. Be patient. Great advice. I just love it. Well, this has been a wonderful time getting to know you. And I'm so glad you were available to be on the show today. And I wish you the greatest success until I see you in person somewhere. Well, I can't wait. Thanks, Marco. Thank you, Rob. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott.